Good morning. Today's Wednesday, August 16th, 2023, and this is 5 at 8 with your hosts, Linda Carlisle and Mark Overman. In this episode, we'll talk about India's ban on non-Basmati white rice exports and its global impact on rice prices. We'll also discuss the ongoing conflict in Sudan and the call for a caretaker government. Then, we'll delve into the confrontation between Afghan women's rights activist Mabuba Siraj and Taliban spokesperson Zabula Mujahid over girls' education. Next, we'll explore the remarkable stock market valuation of Vietnamese electric vehicle maker VinFast, surpassing that of Ford and General Motors. Finally, we'll analyze the implications of Donald Trump's fourth criminal indictment and its potential impact on his 2024 GOP nomination. Stay tuned for all these top news stories of the day. Story number one. India's decision to ban the export of non-Basmati white rice has had a global impact on rice prices, as reported by Al Jazeera. India is the world's biggest rice exporter, accounting for nearly 40% of global rice trade. The ban was imposed due to rising food prices, high inflation, and fears of a rice shortage caused by El Nino disruptions. The ban has led to a 15-25% increase in global rice prices, impacting poor countries that depend on Indian rice. There are concerns that other major rice exporting countries, such as Thailand, Vietnam, and Pakistan, may also impose bans due to El Nino. The shortage of rice could have a spillover effect on other grains and food items, leading to higher prices and impacting fuel prices as well. It's quite astounding, Linda, how a move like India's decision to ban some rice exports, driven mainly by domestic factors, can send ripples across the globe. I mean, we are talking about a surge in global rice prices here. And this comes at a time when international grain prices were already spiking due to the geopolitical disruptions following Russia's war on Ukraine. It's a clear example of how interconnected our global economies are. That's right. And you know, it's not the first time we are seeing this. Back in 2007 to 2008, we had a global rice crisis when Vietnam initiated a rice export ban, followed by India and Cambodia. Prices almost tripled in a matter of months. Yes, history does seem to be repeating itself here. And it's concerning, Mark, because the hardest hit are often the developing nations. Countries like Bangladesh, Nepal, or some African nations, where rice makes up a significant portion of their food budget, are feeling the pinch. And there's this fear that other major rice exporters like Thailand, Vietnam, and Pakistan might follow suit with similar bans, especially if their crops are hurt by El Nino. This could set off a sort of domino effect. That's a very valid point, Mark. And there's another aspect to this. The shortage of rice will likely impact other crops like wheat, soya beans, corn, and maize, which are used as substitutes both for human consumption and in animal feed. This could lead to further increases in the prices of other food items and even fuel. Yeah, it's like a cascading effect. And it's not just about the economy, right? This could potentially spark political instability. Remember the food riots during the 2007 to 2008 rice crisis? These are serious implications. And it's not just about rice or India. It's about how the decisions of individual nations, particularly those driven by domestic needs, can have far-reaching global consequences. It's a conversation about food security, economic stability, and ultimately the well-being of people across the globe. Story number two. According to Al Jazeera, the deputy head of Sudan's sovereign council, Malik Agar, has called for the formation of a caretaker government in Sudan to end the ongoing conflict between the army and paramilitary rapid support forces, RSF. 
Agar emphasized the need for negotiations to end the war and expressed concern for the hardships faced by citizens. He also called for comprehensive dialogue among all political civilian activists in the country and the establishment of a single unified army. Meanwhile, Al Jazeera reports that the United Nations has warned that over one million people have fled Sudan to neighboring countries due to the conflict, and those remaining in the country are facing food shortages and lack of proper health care. The war has caused widespread destruction and displacement, and efforts to negotiate a ceasefire have stalled. So, it's quite a situation in Sudan right now. The conflict between the Sudanese army and the rapid support forces is only getting worse. Malik Agar, the deputy head of Sudan's sovereign council, is calling for a caretaker government to put an end to this. It's clear that the social fabric of the country is being torn apart. It's not just a political crisis, but a humanitarian nightmare as well. The humanitarian fallout from this conflict is particularly distressing. Over a million people have fled the country, and the UN warns of a severe food and healthcare crisis. It's a race against time for the Sudanese farmers to plant crops, and medical supplies are dwindling. The societal impact is immense with rampant looting, power cuts, and even a rise in reported sexual assaults. And it's not just the people of Sudan who are affected. Neighboring countries are feeling the strain as well, with over a million refugees crossing the border. It's a domino effect that could destabilize the entire region. We've seen this happen before in Syria and Rwanda. Once a civil war breaks out, the ripple effects can last for generations. That's a good point. The long-term impact of conflicts like these can be devastating. And let's not forget the role of the international community in mediating these crises. Efforts by Saudi Arabia and the United States to negotiate a ceasefire have stalled. It's a complex situation with no clear solution in sight. True, Linda. The international community should step up its efforts. But it's not just about bringing about a ceasefire. The post-war era will focus on reconstruction and rebuilding of the state institutions. The Sudanese army's chief general Abdel Fattah al-Burhan has accused the RSF of wanting to take the country back to a pre-modern state. It's a delicate balancing act between the need for peace and the need for progress. Yes, Mark. And as we've seen in other conflict situations, the rebuilding process is often more challenging than the conflict itself. It involves not just physical reconstruction, but also restoring trust among the different factions and healing the wounds of the past. The road to recovery for Sudan is long and fraught with challenges, but with a comprehensive dialogue by all the political civilian activists in the country, as Agar suggested, there might be a glimmer of hope for a peaceful and prosperous Sudan. Story number three. Afghan women's rights activist Mabuba Siraj confronts Taliban spokesperson Zabiullah Mujahid in a behind-the-scenes documentary describing the group's ban on girls' education and other restrictions on women as a crime and an apartheid. Siraj pleads for the opening of girls' schools, emphasizing the importance of education. Mujahid acknowledges her concerns but fears that allowing schoolgirls to go against the government could destabilize Afghan society. According to Al Jazeera, the Taliban's decision to keep girls' schools closed has resulted in over 2.5 million Afghan girls and young women being out of school since 2021, reversing previous progress in female education. The Taliban justifies its actions based on its interpretation of Islamic law. The group has imposed various restrictions on women, including preventing them from working with aid agencies, closing beauty salons, banning them from parks, and limiting their ability to travel without a male guardian. Many countries, both Western and Muslim-majority, 
have rejected the Taliban's policies on women's rights. Siraj warns that if the Taliban does not reverse its policies, the world will stand against them and the people of Afghanistan will suffer. Good morrow to you, Linda. This recent news about Afghan activist Mahbuba Siraj confronting the Taliban spokesperson about the ban on girls' education. It's tough stuff. It's like she's standing up to a mountain. And she's right, isn't she? I mean, it's simply not viable to have a whole generation of girls missing out on education. It's distressing to see the situation in Afghanistan. Education, as we know, is essential for personal growth and societal development. And yes, it's absolutely impossible to imagine a society functioning optimally with half of its population denied the basic right to education. It obstructs the path to gender equality and hampers economic progress. Right, right. I'm all for equal opportunities for everyone. And this Taliban spokesperson, Mujahid, he justifies the ban by saying that schoolgirls going against the government could destabilize the Afghan society. I mean, really, how does educating girls lead to destabilization? Well, that's a complex issue, Mark. The concern here is not about the act of educating girls, but the fear of what educated girls, who then become educated women, might do. Mujahid's argument is rooted in a fear of change, a fear of challenging the status quo. And this fear is often manipulated into policies that suppress women's rights. But it's important to note that research and evidence from across the globe consistently show that societies where women's rights are upheld and promoted are more stable and prosperous. That's a spot-on point, Linda. But, you know, it's disheartening to see the progress made in female education over the past 20 years in Afghanistan just, poof, vanish. Now, nearly 80% of school-aged Afghan girls and young women are out of school. And what's with these other restrictions? Stopping most women from working, closing beauty salons, banning women from parks, and limiting their ability to travel without a male guardian. It's just... it's just wrong. It certainly is, Mark. These restrictions are a stark violation of women's rights. The ban on women working and traveling without a male guardian are particularly oppressive, as they not only limit women's freedom, but also their access to opportunities. When we deny women their rights, we're not just harming them as individuals, but we're doing a great disservice to our societies and economies as well. This is why Mahbuba Siraj's warning to Mujahid, that if the Taliban's policies on women are not reversed, the world would stand against them, is so significant. It underscores the global recognition of women's rights as an integral aspect of human rights. I'm with you there, Linda. And I hope our listeners can also see the gravity of this situation. We need more voices like Mabuba Siraj's, more people standing up and demanding that these rights be recognized and respected. Because, at the end of the day, when we uplift women, we uplift everyone, right? Empowering women and safeguarding their rights is indeed a collective responsibility. And it's not just about fairness and justice, but also about building stronger, more resilient societies. The world needs to stand with Afghanistan's women, and with all women who are fighting for their rights. Story number four. According to the BBC, Vietnamese electric vehicle maker VinFast's stock market valuation has surpassed that of Ford and General Motors, GM, on its first day of trading. VinFast's shares surged by 255% on New York's Nasdaq, resulting in a valuation of $85 billion. This impressive growth added approximately $39 billion to the wealth of VinFast's chairman and founder, Pham Nhat Vuong, who is already Vietnam's richest person. VinFast's success is attributed to its backing by Vingroup, 
which provides funding and has a proven track record of growth. However, VinFast faces tough competition in the electric vehicle market from major players like Tesla and BYD. So, Linda, VinFast's stock market debut sure exploded, huh? Skyrocketing past Ford and GM's valuations on its first day. That's something you don't see every day. What's your take on it? It was quite phenomenal. In my view, this explosive debut underscores the immense potential investors see in the electric vehicle market, especially from emerging players like VinFast. As we know, VinFast is backed by Vietnam's largest conglomerate, VinGroup, which gives them a significant financial advantage. That's an interesting point, Linda. I mean, who would have thought a Vietnamese car maker could make such a big splash in the global EV market? But here we are. How do you see this playing out in the long run, given the stiff competition from established players like Tesla? Well, Mark, that's the million-dollar question. The EV market is highly competitive, with giants like Tesla and BYD setting the pace. However, VinFast has a unique opportunity here. They are based in East Asia, a region known for its manufacturing prowess and relatively low production costs. If they can leverage this advantage effectively, they might just carve out a substantial niche for themselves. Yes, Linda. You know, it reminds me of the rise of tech companies in emerging markets. Companies like Alibaba in China or Flipkart in India, challenging the dominance of Silicon Valley giants, right? Could we see a similar trend in the EV market with companies like VinFast? That's a great parallel, Mark. Just as we've seen the rise of tech giants in emerging economies, we could indeed see a similar trend in the EV market. While companies like VinFast face significant challenges, their recent market debut suggests that investors are optimistic about their prospects. Only time will tell if they can live up to these high expectations. Story number five. According to Al Jazeera, Donald Trump's fourth criminal indictment is unlikely to immediately impact his push for the 2024 GOP nomination. The indictment in Georgia which involves Trump and 18 associates in connection with efforts to interfere with the 2020 vote results, aligns with Trump's claims of being targeted by political elites. Despite the charges, Trump remains the front-runner in the Republican nomination race. However, the criminal cases against him could pose a liability in the general election. The latest indictment in Georgia carries a five-year minimum sentence, raising questions about a possible prison term if Trump were to be elected president again. The large number of confidants indicted alongside Trump increases the likelihood of some turning against him. The location of the indictment in the battleground state of Georgia could also have political significance. However, it is still too early to determine the full impact of the indictments on Trump and the 2024 election race, as reported by Al Jazeera. When you look at this, Linda, it's fascinating how Trump's indictments don't seem to be doing much damage to his political standing, at least among his base. His supporters seem to view these charges as politically motivated attacks rather than legitimate concerns. It reminds me of the Clinton impeachment saga, or even Nixon's Watergate scandal, where their core supporters remained loyal despite the controversy. That's true, Mark. It's an interesting phenomenon and it seems to stem from a deep distrust in the system among his base. They see him as an outsider, someone who's battling the establishment. And these indictments, they perceive as a reinforcement of that narrative. You could draw parallels with populists' leaders worldwide who have faced legal challenges but retained public support, like Brazil's Lula or Italy's Berlusconi. Exactly! 
But there's another angle here. Isn't it concerning that our political system allows someone facing multiple criminal indictments to run for the highest office? It makes you wonder if there should be some kind of safeguard in place to prevent this kind of situation. I see your point, Mark, but it's a complex issue. On one hand, you don't want to disenfranchise voters or undermine the democratic process. On the other, you want to ensure that those seeking public office are of high moral and ethical standing. Striking that balance is tricky. True, Linda. It's a thorny issue. Now, let's consider the 2024 election. If Trump does win the nomination and the general election, there's a potential constitutional crisis looming. I mean, what happens if a sitting president is sentenced to jail time? It's uncharted territory for America. Indeed. It's a situation no one wants to find themselves in, but it's a possibility we have to consider. And then there's the question of pardoning power. Can a president pardon himself if convicted of a federal crime? Again, it's a constitutional gray area. Yes, Linda. And it's not just about the individual and his followers. It's also about the broader implications for the political landscape and the precedent it sets for future elections. The 2024 election could be a watershed moment, not just for the United States, but for democracies worldwide. Agreed, Mark. It's a fascinating, if somewhat unsettling time in American politics, and it's a conversation we need to keep having. That's it for this morning. Have a great day and see you all tomorrow. Five at Eight is researched, written, and performed by artificial intelligence. For more information, visit botcaster.ai.